Okay, James chapter 5, the message this week is called Your Heart's Desire. Look, this is not going to be a good way for you to end 2023. <clears throat> this is not going to be comfortable, but it's, it's good for us to squirm sometimes, isn't it? As we test the ropes of our faith to make sure that they're real. <clears throat> Question for you, what, what would it be like if you were given everything that your heart desires? <laughs> what, if all, what if all your dreams came true? Would it make you happy? Would you be completely satisfied or would it actually be a complete disaster? Look, I'm not, I'm not talking about the standard desires of a family and a good job or great friends. What about all those hidden heart's desires? What about what your heart desired when you were angry? What if all those desires became a reality? Would you be doing 30 to life? <laughs> what if every thirst you ever had for revenge, every desire you ever had for justice was satisfied? Would your life be better today? What if you could fulfill every desire you ever had for material things? All the clothes, the cars, the houses, the gadgets, would that be good? What if every secret lustful desire you've ever had was fulfilled? Would that complete you or would that kill you? What if, what if every person who ever lived got everything their heart desired? How would that have worked out? I mean, when you think about it, I bet 95% I bet of what we desire, if we followed those desires, would end in total catastrophe. But we can know our ropes of faith are secure by how we as followers of Jesus are able to handle those desires. James chapter 1, 13 through 15. Look at the passage today. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we're not talking about, like, physical death. We're talking about what we learned in Revelation, the second death. Historically speaking, I want you to understand, James's readers are living with temptation. Right away, his readers would see this link to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 to 30, about how every sin begins in your own heart. I'm shortening the passage a little bit. We're just going to look at uh, verses 27 through 30. Look what, this is what they would have noticed right away. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Go to the next slide. For it is better that you lose one of your members then your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell or the second death. That's Jesus. Hello, that's pretty harsh. 
See, what Jesus was doing there in the Sermon on the Mount, which, as I've taught you, is the foundation for the book of James, what Jesus was doing is he's using hyperbolic language to emphasize how hopeless our situation is without God's grace intermeeting somehow. You think you can be righteous on your own? Well, you better pluck out your eye because your heart will corrupt it. You think you can be righteous on your own? Well, you better cut off your hand because the desires of your human heart will cause your hand to sin. Why would Jesus use such strong graphic language? Because he's making it clear that humanity's problem starts on the inside. But all of Jewish culture had become hyper-focused on the outside, on the external, on self-righteousness, either through ritual or through rule-following. For example, the Pharisees overemphasized righteousness through human effort by following a bunch of strict, man-made laws and rules they'd added to the Scripture. The Sadducees, the other side, overemphasized achieving righteousness through religious ceremony and rituals and feasts and temple worship and cleansing ceremonies. But Jesus was telling them all they needed to return to the core teaching of the Old Testament, which is this, righteousness cannot be achieved through rules or rituals. Humanity's core issue is the sinful heart. This is what Jesus was telling them. And we've all been born with this sinful heart since the fall of Adam and Eve. We'll get into that later. What Jesus is saying is what you really need are new hearts. Because the ones you're born with are full of desires that lead to sin and end in death. The second death. These first century followers of Jesus are still learning. I understand this is a new movement. It's barely 20 years old. And they're still learning what it means to live in this world with their new hearts that the gospel has given them. Remember, it's only been 20 years since the resurrection. Even in the best circumstances, learning how to follow Jesus would be tough. I mean, frankly, we kind of have the best circumstances in America, and it's tough. But as they gathered in secret to avoid persecution, they were learning together how to live out what Jesus had taught them. They're discovering together in community the the beautiful grace of the cross, how the gospel has made them new creations and given them new hearts. And through the apostles' teaching and the Holy Spirit, they are discovering the mercies of Jesus every day. They were new to them every morning. They are, in fact, this first century church that is dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. They are pioneers of grace. They didn't have the benefit of over 2,000 years of Christian study in the scriptures like we do. It's all brand new. That's why the book of James was so important. So that's the history. Theology. I want you to see what the scripture says about heart problems. This theme of the human battle with our own heart's desire is actually all throughout scripture. And it goes all the way back to a very clear link that this passage has to Genesis chapter 3. The whole story of Adam and Eve, and then in chapter 4 even with Cain and Abel. But I'm just going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and was a delight to the eyes, and was to be desired, that word desire pops up again, to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Why was this tree desirable? Because Adam and Eve believed they had a right to the wisdom and power that God had so they could make their own rules. Why should they have to be obedient to God? They have their own free will. They can make their own choices. They wanted to be God. And once they were confronted with their sin, you know what their response was? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. The man said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said, God, to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see what Adam's response is? It's the same one James warns about. James says, don't say God tempted you. He blames God, the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. Boy, you think you have marriage problems? Can you imagine your spouse throwing you under the bus in front of God? That's a whole nother level. They're going to need some counseling when this is done. But look who Eve blames. Eve also blames God. The serpent tricked her with a very desirable tree. God, you made the serpent. You made the tree. You put me in this inescapable trap of temptation. They both blame God. That's why James says, don't say that God tempted you. Don't even say God is testing you. You know, I see that a lot of times. People put that on. God is. No, he's not. You're testing you. (laughs) But God wasn't to blame. Adam and Eve were to blame for what happened. They were enticed by the desires of their own heart to be God. They knew what they were doing. Just like Satan, they were not content to be servants of God. Their heart's desire was to be their own God. And that desire didn't come out of nowhere. It was already in their hearts way before the serpent came around. And the result of following their desire, which grew to sin and grew to death, was catastrophic. All creation, which was supposed to, by the way, be under their care, is now under the curse of the end result of desire, which is sin and death. And this this is the inevitable result of human free will every time. Every time. The desires of our heart will give birth to sin, and sin, when it comes full force, it brings forth death. These lessons in the Sermon on the Mount and James are about the origins of temptation, and they are all directly relinked to this beautiful passage in Psalms. Look at this one. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. He is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digs it out, and falls into the hole as he had made. Can any of you relate to that, by the way? (laughs) His mischief returns upon his own head. On his own skull, his violence descends. See, Adam and Eve's choice started what I call a depravity epidemic. It has infected every human heart born since, including their firstborn Cain and Abel and yours. Since the fall of Adam, we've all made the exact same choice that Adam and Eve made. We followed the desires of our hearts. We made our own rules. We wanted our own wisdom to rule the day. Since then, every person ever born has a heart where this cancerous desire originates. It's called 
in theological circles, total depravity. It's not partial depravity. It's complete, total depravity. You see, it's not your sinful actions that make you need a Savior. It's not your sinful actions that make you unrighteous. It's every desire in your dead heart that makes you unrighteous, even the ones you don't act on. Waiting for your eye or your hand to sin is too late. The very desire of your heart reveals your desperate condition. This is why Jesus said, if you hate your brother, like Cain hated his brother, you've already committed murder. That's why Jesus said, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. This cycle, this cycle is a runaway freight train of desire that we nurture almost daily until it gives birth to sin and it ends in death. This cycle cannot be stopped unless God intervenes through the gift of faith. And through that gift of faith, giving us a new heart, this, this heart of flesh that I will describe later. There's only one cure, one escape from the desires of your heart. We need a new heart, and that only comes from God. Ezekiel 36, look at this. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Good works that we trip over. Ephesians 2. And be careful to obey my commands. The heart of stone is that dead heart that all of us have. The one we've been born with since the fall of Adam and Eve. It's the heart that is filled with our own desires that is what constantly draws us away from following our Jesus, enticing us and, and leading us to sin. It's the heart that loves to put the blame on everything and everyone else except itself. It's even the heart, this dead heart, that becomes, that has the nerve to become angry with God or even doubt he exists. This is God's fault. He, he made me this way. He put me in this world. Or how about this one? The atheist will say, if God is real, how could he let bad stuff happen? Well, the bad stuff is our fault. But the heart of flesh, this is the new heart. The new life created when the Holy Spirit gives us that gift of faith by God's sovereign grace. It's that, it's that profound, miraculous moment where we are made into new creations with new hearts that have new desires. If we are going to escape the cycle of desire and sin and death, you know what? We desperately need this new heart, this heart of flesh. Okay, that's our theology. Let's get into the personal section. What about you? What are you supposed to do with this? Well, you need a new heart. This was the sermon preview this week. Your own heart's desires are the most dangerous temptations you will ever face. You will face more danger from your heart than any politician could ever pose for you. Did you know that? Your heart is the problem, not who is elected president. Your heart is more dangerous than I-75 or US-41. Your heart is the most dangerous thing that you face each day. And how we respond to our heart's desires, I'll just tell you this, how we respond to our heart's desires might be the most probing, revealing, intimidating test of our faith that James has provided us yet in chapter 1. 
The heart of stone, the dead heart, is incapable of understanding what this passage in James is teaching. The heart of stone doesn't even think it has a problem. But the heart of flesh, the new heart, can understand. And spotting the difference between these two kinds of hearts is very critical. It's James, and remember I told you chapter 1 is sort of like a table of contents cover page for chapters 2 through 5. And what James does in chapter 1 is he gives you like, if you were in a desert and you hadn't had any water and somebody found you, they don't give you a gallon, right? They give you a sip just to get you to the... That's what James is doing. He's saying, look, you got a lot to work on here, but here's some emergency tests just to see where you are. That way you can calm down and go into the details in chapter 2 through 5. That's what this is, another emergency drink of water. He's providing a quick preliminary emergency test of your faith before he gets into really the deep stuff. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Look at this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's so sick, who could really understand how sick it is? You don't know how sick your heart is. Just trust me, it's bad. (laughs) Mine too, mine too. It's important to know if you are driven by a dead heart. It's also important to know if you've been given a new heart. Wouldn't it be good to know if you have a dead heart today? Wouldn't it be good to know if you've got a problem with your heart? Well, I have a list. (laughs) Of course I do. Listen, a dead heart is oblivious to its true spiritual condition. It is spiritually numb like a lifeless stone. A dead heart is unable to comprehend spiritual truths like this one. It can't see beyond its own desires in this life. A dead heart is so obsessed with its own desires, it has little or no desire to live as Jesus has commanded. A dead heart will constantly, easily, creatively rationalize why it's okay to give in to its desires. A dead heart is consistently unable to see the traps that temptation has set. And a dead heart is repeatedly powerless against those traps. In fact, in fact, a dead heart will fall for the same trap over and over and over with no remorse. A dead heart despises accountability, resents accountability, and it always tries to find a secret escape hatch so that it can continue sin. A dead heart is very skilled at constructing ways to hide its sin, right? To conceal it, to keep it a secret. A dead heart is usually quite surprised, even bewildered and stunned by the devastating, painful consequences of its sin. A dead heart is very comfortable as the victim. That's where it really thrives. It will consistently blame others and even blame God. You know what else a dead heart will do? It will isolate from community with God's people because it loves its desires more than Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll love my sheep. Okay, this is one of our background slides for this series. You know, if your ropes of faith are going to hold, it starts with becoming a new creation, right? By having this new heart. It is the supernatural transformation that only comes from God through His Spirit 
through the gift of faith in the gospel of Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, the second half. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the type of heart we have to have where God writes his law on your heart. See, when God gives you a new heart, it doesn't mean you never give in to desire again. You hear me? But you will be at war with desire. When the Spirit gives you the gift of faith, your new heart comes with new desires that fight against your old ones. It's one of the ways you can know if your ropes of faith will hold. When your new heart resists the old one. That internal struggle that you have with your desires, that, dear brothers and sisters, is proof that God has given you a new heart. And your ropes of faith will hold when temptation comes. So wouldn't it be comforting to know what it looks like if God has given you a new heart? Well, I have a list. <laughs> Look at this passage first in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love that verse. A new heart can hear the voice of the great shepherd. It recognizes the voice of Jesus and come when he calls. Remember Jesus said that? My sheep know me and hear my voice and follow me. A new heart will respond to the gospel. It's what we call irresistible grace. A new heart desires something a dead heart could never understand. It desires to follow the lamb wherever he goes. A new heart is, is quickly aware when its secret thoughts and desires are out of step with what Jesus has commanded us. A new heart will identify areas of weakness and eagerly take proactive steps to avoid possible cliffs and pitfalls that might tear your ropes of faith. A new heart draws strength to resist desire from prayer, from scripture, and from consistent community with other believers. A new heart is comforted by accountability. Did you hear that? A new heart is comforted by accountability and will seek it out within the church and community with other Christians. Voluntarily. A new heart is miserable when it is living in constant capitulation to sinful desire. It has a competing desire for repentance. At the same time, a new heart, listen, a new heart might give in to desire sometimes. But when it does, it will, it will desire confession, repentance, and forgiveness quickly. You know what else a new heart will do? A new heart will desire to make amends to those who might have been hurt by its failures. And when a new heart does give in to temptation and desire, you know what it does? It scrambles as quick as it can back to its ropes of faith, desperate to renew its grip. And James tells us how high the stakes are when we give in to our own desires. So we must ask this question of ourselves today. I'm asking you today, do you have a heart of stone full of sinful desires all leading you to death? 
Grace-like, do you want to know if your ropes of faith will hold? Well, one sign is that internal struggle that you have with your own desires. Or is is it possible that you're just in a spiritual malaise? You're unbothered by the sinful desires of your heart. Constantly, easily enticed by them. Or, has God, through the sovereign gift of faith in the gospel, given you a new heart with new desires? Do you feel that constant tension between the old heart and the new heart? Do you feel it? Paul said, every day I feel it and it drives me nuts. I mean, that's the King Joey version, but still, you get the point. (laughs) Are you at war between the desires of your old heart and your new one? If you are, that's a good sign. And I urge you to stay close to God and stay close to His people. If that is not you, I urge you today to pray, Heavenly Dad, please, I desperately need a new heart. Dear Jesus, we are so thankful for the miraculous gift of faith. Thank you that you Tear out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a new heart, a living heart that understands spiritual truth and fills us with new desires. Desires to be obedient and to make you smile and to follow you wherever you go. A new heart that has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. A new heart that desires confession and repentance and making amends and growing in wisdom and knowledge. A new heart that takes responsibility. Lord, these are not natural things. And Lord, for those that are here today who are thankful that the the test of faith is revealing, they have a new heart. Lord, I pray that you would continue to encourage them to stand strong and resist the devil so he will flee from them. Lord, for those who maybe for the first time are hearing this this concept of an old heart and a new heart and and they're concerned, oh man, I don't know if I have a new heart. Lord, I pray that by your sovereign grace that you would speak to their hearts, that your spirit would, would go right now and say to them, I am the Lamb of God, follow me. And Lord, I pray by the Spirit and by your word that you would give them a new heart and write your law on their hearts. Lord, thank you for these tests of faith that we're going through in James. Lord, I pray that you continue to give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that understand so that we can know for sure that our ropes of faith will hold no matter what. Rescue.